Thank you for joining us today for the Restoration Church podcast. Today, this is the eighth in our sermon series about James, and it is called Your Input Does Not Equal God's Output. We hope you enjoy. Now, we're going to be in James chapter 4 here in just a second, studying together. Anybody in here like to cook? Anybody enjoy cooking? Some folks do. Sean's got his hand raised, like to cook. Now, there's two different kinds of cooking I have discovered in life. There is the kind of cooking you do every day, right? Uh, cook spaghetti or you cook mac and cheese. Uh, you do something real simple just to get through the day. And then there's those meals or those times where you try to cook something that's really good. Uh, you know, maybe it's a special occasion or maybe you're craving something really good. Well, uh, usually for me that means that I am craving something from my childhood, uh, some meal from back in the day. Uh, some something that my mom cooked or someone else in my family cooked. And we actually have a, a cookbook that uh, has recipes in it. Uh, from You remember this? Uh, we have a cookbook that has recipes in it from like way back in the day. Great-grandmother recipes, uh, recipes that, that, uh, that when you get that craving, you want to go and you want to find that good cookbook with all those old recipes from, from your mother, from your grandmother, from your great-grandmother, and try those out. I don't know about you, but if you ever try that, sometimes it doesn't work out quite like you think it should work out. You use the right recipe, uh, you do everything that's in the instructions, but at the end of the day, you, uh, your, your outcome, your result isn't as good as you thought it would be. Uh, you, you pretty much quickly discover that the right recipe does not always guarantee great results. Um, anybody ever had that experience? And it doesn't help to call your mom. Here's what I've discovered. When you try to call your mom and say, hey, I need help cooking the cornbread. I love cornbread. Anybody else like cornbread? I love cornbread. I'm from, the, I'm from Alabama, so, you know, like, in, you got to like some cornbread. And I'm not talking about the cake that, you, that they call cornbread you, you, that you go to some restaurants and get or you go to, like, up north and get. Yeah, I'm talking about you, Rebecca. You know, it's that cake, that yellow cake that they call cornbread. I'm not, I'm not talking about that stuff. I'm talking about cornbread. Cast iron skillet. It's kind of cr- like when you pick it up and it falls apart in your hand, you know, that, like, crumbly cornbread. That's cornbread. Every now and then I'll get the craving cornbread, and so I'll try to get the recipe out of the recipe book and try to cook the cornbread, and I'll sometimes even call my mom, and that doesn't necessarily help very much because you're just like, okay, I'm trying to cook cornbread, I'm using the recipe, but I have no idea what to do to cook the cornbread like you usually cook the cornbread. That doesn't help much because she's like, well, I don't know, just put a little bit of this in it, a little bit of that, and I kind of stir it, and I kind of do that, and I'm like, what do you, I don't understand what you're saying because your cornbread always ends up different than mine. When I try to cook it, it it, uh, usually ends up more like a... uh, a very dense packing material than it does actual cornbread. So I've discovered that having the right recipe does not guarantee great results. Now in our lives there's oftentimes we find ourselves in a similar situation where we are looking for the recipe for great results in our marriage. So we may be in the middle of uh, trying to have a successful marriage, maybe in the middle of difficulty in our marriage, and we're looking for the right recipe so that our marriage will be great. So we read books, we go to conferences, we can't wait until the pastor preaches on the series um, and preaches the series on marriage so that we can get the right recipe for marriage. Or maybe it's for parenting. Uh, we read the parenting books. We ask our friends. We get counsel. What is the right recipe for parenting? Even finances, uh, our, our work world, our, our leadership approach. Um, we, we like to read. We like to study. Just tell me the steps to do. Give me the ingredients, the recipe for great marriage, for great family, for great parenting, for great finances. And uh, oftentimes we find that no matter how hard we do the recipe like we see other people do it, uh, no matter how much tender care and love we give to the recipe, no matter who we call and ask for help, we end up discovering that the, that the right recipe doesn't guarantee the great results, so what we would expect, what we'd want. So we often do that in our spiritual life too, don't we? 
So for those of us who follow Jesus, we want to have lives that are real close to God. We want to be in friendship with God. We want to hear him speak to us. We want to see him transform us, change us, challenge us, grow us, help us become more like Jesus. And so oftentimes we look for a recipe for that. You know, just tell me how many times a day I'm supposed to pray. Tell me when I'm supposed to pray, how long I'm supposed to pray. What structure should my prayer be? Give me the recipe. Uh, but when I read the Bible, well, how, when should I read the Bible? Where should I read the Bible? Where should I start? Where should I end? Uh, what should that look like? What questions should I ask? Uh, we, we get the books. We, we look at the, the teachers out there to help understand who are the, what are the right steps to take to make sure that we read the Bible and we pray and we do all the things God wants us to do according to the right recipe, believing that if we get the recipe right, we will end up with great results. We do that in ministry. Uh, we as a church, a Restoration Church, and a, uh, as guests are here from other churches as well, we want to do things with the perfect recipe, the right strategy, the right innovation, and the right creativity. And we believe if we just get it right, the results will be exactly uh, what we hope they will be. Well, James is going to ha- actually, uh, actually help us understand that life is more like my cooking, that a right recipe does not guarantee great results. Look at James chapter 4 with me. Uh, we're going to be in verse 13 here in a second, but let me remind you of of uh, where, where we've been in the book of James. So overall in the book of James, the big idea is simply this. We need to know who God is, have a correct understanding of the character and quality and nature and personality of God. We need to know who He is well. And when we do so, through the Spirit, through listening to the Spirit, God will begin to transform and change our lives. So that's the big idea of the book of James. Now in the, in the last couple of weeks, few weeks, we've been in chapter 4. A few weeks ago, Will reminded us and taught us as we looked at the first part of chapter 4 that, that as the Holy Spirit begins to change us, as we begin to see who God really is, and we listen to God speak to us and guide us and change us, what we find is, is that humility is the result, and the result of humility is unity. Unity is the result of humility. And then what happens in James chapter 4, what we looked at last week is, is that our hearts begin to change, and James begins to challenge us or show us what does humility look like in everyday life. And that's where we left off last week. How does it look at, how does it affect our relationships? And then in verse 13, if you have a, if you have a good old-fashioned paper Bible, this will be maybe easier to do if you have a, a digital Bible like I usually use. This might be tougher. But in verse 13 in, uh, chapter, of chapter 4, in chapter 5, verse 1, there are two words that start both of those sections. And in, in my translation, it's come now. And it's basically two different, uh, two different ways in which humility gets lived out or expressed out. Now, for those of you who have read this chapter recently, or maybe if you are here last Sunday or listened on Facebook Live last Sunday, you'll know that the way James ends verse 12 sets us up for the rest of it. James says to us, who do you think you are? Who are you? And with that in mind, with that, that challenge in mind, to challenge uh, our, our self-assessment of ourselves, um, that might have been redundant, um, <laughs> to challenge our self-assessment, he says to us, who do you think you are? And then he's going to give us two specific ways in which we understand how that applies or how that lives out in our lives. So we're going to be in verse 13. We'll read through it. I'll make a few comments as we go, and then we'll come to one big idea and apply it, and uh, we'll move from there. So verse 13. It says, come now, listen up. This is just get your attention kind of language. You who say, today or tomorrow we will travel to such and such a city, and spend a year there and do business and make a profit. Now that word spend, you might want to just highlight in your mind. We're going to come back to that one in a minute because it comes back up later in the passage. And I want you to see why it comes back up later. So kind of highlight in there, that in your mind. But before we move on, what's, what's James challenging us to think differently about? He's saying you in your mind think you can predict your success. 
If I do step one, if I do step two, step three, step four, then I can guarantee profit. I can guarantee success. I can guarantee if I get the right recipe, I will have the right results. And James is beginning to challenge our thinking on this. Can we actually predict without doubt consistently the same results over and over and over? And James is warning us against the temptation to think that the right recipe guarantees great results. Verse 14. You don't even know what tomorrow will bring or what your life will be like. And Paul's right there and say, it's not what your life will be like specifically. It's more what kind of life you have, of what quality, of what, of what type of life you have. And then he goes and answers what kind of life we have. So what's the quality? What's the value? What's the assessment of our life? Remember, he just recently said, well, who do you think you are? So we might ought to have some tempered expectations about the quality that he describes or, or attaches to our life. So who do you think you are? And then he says, what? you don't even know what kind of life or how significant your life is? And then he answers it. For you are a bit of smoke, or some translations say vapor, that appears for a little while and vanishes. That word translated vapor is the Greek word atmos. It's the same word we use when we talk about the atmosphere. So sphere means what? Circle. That's right, I got you. you got to make sure you're still in, in with me. Sphere means circle, and atmos means air or gas. So the atmosphere is what we use to describe the circle of air, the circle of gas, or circle, circle around us. It's the, it's the non-substantial part of our world. It's the non-earth, um, non the non-solid non -solid material. It's not as significant as the ground. So a person during this age did not think of earth like we think of earth. When I think of earth, what do you, when you think of earth, you have a tendency to probably think like I do of a, of a circle in the air, right? Um, you know, the, and you look at it, you may be looking at it from the moon because we now have pictures of the earth from the moon and we, in the distance, see the earth and we see the United States and we see the, uh, North America and South America, maybe a little bit of Europe. We see the oceans, the green and the blue. That's what we think of when we think of earth. Well, when a person reading this um, around, uh, around um, AD 50 would have read this or uh, 50 AD would have read this, they wouldn't have thought of earth like that. When they heard the word earth or when they heard the word air, in this case, um, atmos, they would have thought of earth being the ground in front of them. So if you were looking out right now, looking out, looking out on the ground, they think of the ground in front of them as the earth and the sky or the heavens, or in this case, the atmosphere as the air above it. That's the way they thought. They didn't have pictures of the earth from the moon, right? If they did, that gets kind of creepy. That would be a really good like documentary for TLC or something like that or the History Channel. That's kind of usually what's on the History Channel these days. The aliens took pictures from the moon and sent them to the earth. 3,000 years ago. But they didn't really have that. We know they didn't really have that. They think of earth, they thought of the ground in front of them and the area above it. And that's that atmosphere. It's the unsubstantial part of the, of the universe as you look at it from yourself. It's saying that our life compared to God is just vapor. It's just smoke. It's not substantial. What he's challenging us to think differently about is how, um, how significant we, we are or should be in the equation, he goes on to say, so that's the good news part of the message. Just, just joking. It's, it gets better from here. Verse 15. So what, what should you stay and said, or what should you think and said? Instead, you should say, or you should think, if the Lord wills, or when the Lord chooses, we will live, and we'll do this or that. Now, you'll probably notice that this is meant to be compared to the saying that's in verse 13. So there's two times someone's saying something. The first one is we're saying we're predicting our success. We're going to go to this and this or that city. 
we're going to we're going to spend time in that city. We're going to spend a year. We're going to do business. We're going to have success. We're going to make a profit. And then verse fifteen, it's the same idea, but at this time, it's if the Lord chooses, if the Lord wills, we're going to do this or that, experience certain uh, certain things. So he's telling us to compare those two sentences. So we're going to do that here in a second. Let's read at the end. I'll come back to that one. Verse sixteen. But as it is, you boast in your arrogance, or literally boast in the Bible can be uh, a way to refer to confidence or trust. You put your trust in your arrogance or in the things that would make you arrogant. What has a tendency to make you arrogant? I'll tell you what it is in my life. Oftentimes, uh, it's definitely not my good looks. Um, it's not my athletic ability. But it is my ability to process information and develop strategies. And that's where I have a tendency to be very arrogant. Every one of us probably has a different way in which we are tempted to be arrogant. Maybe it's our speaking ability. Maybe it is your looks. It's where we begin to build our identity, our self-worth, our own value on something other than what God says about us. What does God say about us? God says that we're accepted and beloved by God completely, perfectly, infinitely, not because of what we do or who we are, but we're accepted and loved by God because of who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. And that's our identity and our value. Arrogance, what this passage has challenged us to think about, is when we trust and have confidence in something that might make us find value or have identity other than those things that Jesus says we are. Jesus has made us. It could be your looks. It could be your intelligence. It could be your bank account. It could be your creativity, your innovation. It could be your athletic ability. James is challenging us to not take confidence or trust in those things would have a tendency to make us prideful or arrogant. And then verse 17, this connects back to what was in verse 15. So the person who knows to do good and doesn't do it it is a sin. So I want to, I want to look at verse 13, uh, verses 15 and 17 together before we move out of the text. So in verse 15 it says, um, if a person says this, or this is what you should say, if the Lord wills, or when the Lord chooses, or when the Lord wants me to, we will live and do this or that. That word do is the same word for spend that was up in the other verse. Remember I said, hey, make a note of this. We're coming back to it. You remember that? It's the same Greek word. Um, it's uh, the word poeo or poema is sometimes you hear it referred to. What does that sound like in English? Poem. Poem, right? And it's the idea in the verb form. It's to make something, to create something. It's to be productive or innovative or even creative. So in the first verse, it's saying that the person plans to do this, and they believe that their creativity or their action, their productivity, guarantees results. In the second iteration of the idea in verse 15, it says, when the Lord wills, we will live, and we will do this or that. So he's still living out in creativity or innovation, right? So this passage isn't saying, don't be innovative, or don't be creative, or don't be strategic. Matter of fact, it's even telling us that as the Lord wills, we should expect to be, as believers, as followers of Jesus, as those who follow the God who created everything we see in the windows that we can peek out and see, as the God who created the amazing stars in the sky, as a God who created all the animals and all the glories of the universe, we should expect that if we follow him, if we do what he wills, if we do what he chooses, we should expect to be creative and innovative and artistic and, and be the most, the, the most gifted of craftsmen. Our, our ministries ought to reflect that kind of stri strategic thinking. Strategery, right? The old, uh, the old Bushism. Strategery. It, we, we should expect it to reflect the beauty and glory and creativity and innovation that we see in God. It's not saying that that part of the process is wrong, that that's a wrong part of the recipe. What it is saying is that doesn't guarantee the results. 
As a matter of fact, when you get into verse 17, when it says, so the person, literally it's therefore, the person who knows to do good and doesn't do it, for that person it's a sin. So this gives, this gives Bible scholars a lot of trouble, by the way. This is the part of the, the study this morning that if you, uh, if you really like digging in and understanding some of the, the, the nitty-gritty things in the text, some of those things, you're going to enjoy this for the next two minutes. I promise to keep it two minutes. The rest of you might want to get on Facebook and announce that we're on Facebook Live while, you're, while I'm doing this part. But, but commentaries will talk about that this is, this is hard to explain because why in the world does the, what is the therefore therefore? Because he literally says, therefore... When the person who knows to do what's good and doesn't do it, it is a sin. Why, what is the there, why would that be a therefore? So a lot of people will just not translate it. The Revised Standard Version just doesn't translate it. completely ignores it. Most English translations make it really um, not obvious. Um, some will even say it's a quote from another book or another book in the Bible, so it's just kind of hanging on from another text. Like it's, it doesn't really make sense in this context, but it's quoted from somewhere else. We're not sure where. But it, because it's quoted for somebody else, it's just, it's just hanging on to some of the verbiage that would have made sense in the original context. Um, I believe that it actually fits right here and fits very well because what is he saying? He's saying the person who knows what to do, he knows the right thing to do. Now, now comparing that to verse 15, what is the right thing to do? Whatever the Lord, whatever the Lord wills, whatever the Lord chooses, whatever the Lord, Lord wants us to do. So once we know what God wants us to do, once he's made it plain to us, once we know, it's the word know, it's to, to be aware of, to be, to be certain of. Once we know what God wants us to do, then it becomes sin to us when we don't do it. Now, he's not saying what isn't, what isn't sin, right? There's a lot of things that are sin and not sin, and he's not trying to give us a complete definition or theology or philosophy of what's wrong and what's right. It is, it is important to point out, though, that the Bible still talks about sin and calls sin, sin. And that's important because if we don't know what the problem is, we'll never get a remedy. So it may not be popular in 2016 to call the rebellion in the world and the rebellion in our hearts sin. But James does not skirt around the issue. He identifies the issue. And the issue is always for every problem and every wrong in this earth, the real issue is sin. And in so doing, he helps us understand a little bit of what the solution is, at least in our own daily lives. And that is coming to certainty about what the Lord's will is. If the Lord wills, in verse 15, or if the Lord chooses, we will live and we will do this or that. Or we'll be creative and we'll be innovative. Now, I just want to take a second. You look at your own Bibles. Look at verse 15. And compare that, compare that to verse 15. I'm sorry, verse 13. Look at verse 15. Compare, compare it to verse 13. I want you to just think. This is a rhetorical question. Jim, that means you're not supposed to answer. This is a rhetorical question. What's different between 15 and 13? Think about it for a second. So because it's a rhetorical question, I'm going to answer it for you. So here's the difference. The same commands are given basically, the same promises, the same commitments are given in both of them. We're going to go and we're going to do this or that. As a matter of fact, he uses the same word, this word uh, uh, poema, the same word again two times because he wants us to compare the two of them. And for the, for the most part, it's the same thing happening twice with one with two big exceptions. The first one, and the one that probably popped in most of our minds first is, is this God's will? Are we doing what God wants us to do? Are we listening to the Spirit? Are we coming to the conclusion that we know what God's plan is? Is this our ideas or God's ideas? Here's the second one. And this is, to me, is the most important part of the text. What is missing at the end? What's missing at the end is a guarantee of success. 
You see, what James is saying is, is that the same exact process, being led by the Spirit of God, doing God's will, the same recipe can be used. But the person who trusts in God, the person who's following God and understands who God is and how great God is, how big God is, how infinite, how righteous, how sovereign, how much full of knowledge, and how, in comparison, small we are, they don't make promises they can't keep. They know that the right recipe does not guarantee the results. It's the same input without the promise of the output. The right recipe does not guarantee great results. So let's make a few thought, have a few thoughts about that and, and kind of bring it, bring it home. A couple of thoughts. One is, is when we think about God's call in our life, that's another way to say the Lord's will. So we, we might say, you might say, God's called us to do something. What does God call us to? God never calls us to the output. He only calls us to the input. We have to trust him with the output. God never calls us to the result. He calls us to the recipe. We have to trust him with the result. God calls us to the do, not the outcome. So God called me years ago to be a teacher of God's word. To study, to reflect, to pray, and to teach. And, he, and he, he gave me the spiritual gift of teaching in that. God called me to be a teacher years ago. Now at the same time as a 15-year-old, 16-year-old kid, I imagined what that would look like, right? I imagined, and just, just being honest, this is going to sound very arrogant, it's because I am, number one. And number two, I was 15 or 16, which means I was way worse then than I am now. I'll be glad that you guys know me now. As a 15, 16-year-old kid who knew God called me to do those things, I imagined myself standing up in front of great crowds like Billy Graham. Thousands. I don't know if you've looked around today, but uh, not thousands. And I imagined God's call on my life to look like that Billy Graham scenario. I wanted to be, you know, Bono of, of the preacher world, be the look up the crowds chanting my name. That was the outcome, right? But God didn't call me to an outcome. God never calls us to an outcome, He calls us to an input. We have to trust Him with the outcome. So, why would He do this? Why would God call us to think this way? Well, I'm going to give us a bit of a, an analogy that, that, to be quite honest, maybe a little PG-13, but, um, but track with me for a second. So imagine with me for a second that you and your wife or your spouse, um, at the end of the day, after a long day, have a certain desire, especially guys, many of us, many different, many different evenings, have a certain desired outcome at the end of a typical day, Right? In our marital relationships, we often have a certain desired outcome uh, every single day. My wife's blushing. Um, so so let's, let's continue to scenario on. Let's say that desired outcome actually happened for the married couples in the room. That desired outcome actually occurred. So afterwards, sitting there, we're talking to our wives. We talk about thank you. Thank you for that desired outcome. That's not how we say it. Um, hopefully. If that is how you say it, you need to say it differently. Um, thank you for that desired outcome. This worked out exactly like I had it planned. Oh, really? Yeah, it worked out exactly like I had it planned. This morning when I got up and I, um, I sent you that little text, 
I was hoping we would get to this outcome. And then at 10 o'clock, I was like, okay, I, I really want the result to be what I want it to be, so I'm going to make sure that I, I go and I, I order flowers. So I'm going to send you some flowers. Yeah, I remember you did that, yeah. And then at 12 o'clock, we're going to go. We know how we went. We got that meal. I knew that would be a part of the plan. That would be part of the strategy. Took you to your favorite restaurant. It was so sweet, romantic. I held your hand. I sat beside you in the booth instead of across from you. That's so weird. I sat across from you in the booth. Yeah, yeah, I remember that. Yeah, you know how I kind of snuck by at about 3 o'clock at, at the office and said hello? Yeah, yeah, I remember that. Yeah, it was so good. And then, and then I picked you up after work, and we had that, that date, and I made sure, it, you know, the, the car was clean. Yeah, yeah, that was so good. And it ended up exactly like I thought it would. How's your spouse going to feel? Let me even ask a different question. Who did you really buy those flowers for? You bought them for you, right? You see, in a relationship, because it's a relationship, there can't be recipes that determine or equate to results. By definition of a relationship, I cannot say I'm going to do step one, step two, step three, step four, and get the results that I want, right? The right recipe does not guarantee the, the, the right results. And even if you get them, somebody's not going to be happy in this equation, right? Our call to God is a relationship. It's not cooking a meal. God doesn't want us to just go through step one, step two, step three, step four, and we can guarantee that any miracle we want will be ours. Just call 1-800, get your miracle, and your miracle is going to be yours. Well, you didn't, why didn't God heal my, my friend? Well, you didn't pray right. You didn't pray enough. You didn't pray early enough in the morning. You didn't pray late enough at night. Did you read the book I suggested for you to read? Did you, when you, when you were praying, um, did, you, did you say in Jesus' name after? Because maybe you just forgot to say in Jesus' name after it was over with. The recipe, the right recipe does not guarantee great results, the right results. Why? Because God has not called us into the results. He's called us in the recipe. And for us, the recipe is a relationship. He's called us into living out in intimacy and closeness to Him. That's the big idea of James. Listening to the Spirit through, through reflecting and studying the Word of God so that we begin to see who He is and so that we can say, God is the only giver of good gifts. The, every good gift that ever came comes from you, God. God is the only good one. God is the only great one. God is full of love and kindness and grace. And once I begin to understand who He is and get to know Him, and trust and surrender and dependency and relationship and friendship, listening to the Spirit of God speaking in my heart, planting inside my mind the ideas of who Christ is so that I have the mind of Christ. I have the thoughts. Get this. I have the thoughts of Jesus in my thoughts. I have the desires of the Spirit in my desires. There's not a formula. There's not a recipe that guarantees the results. So, if I'm up here and I begin to talk with a small voice, I don't do this very often. What does it make you do? Lean in, right? So if we got the recipe, we know it from A to Z, and we can guarantee results from it, I never have to lean in. I never have to listen closely. 
I never have to ask the questions. I never have to ask for hugs. I never have to ask God to fix something. God allows us to be in a place of dependency and trust and unpredictability so that in the relationship we will lean in. And this morning as we move into worship, and I'm going to invite our guys to go ahead and come up. The invitation is to lean in. Lean in and listen. You know, maybe as someone, you might be sitting here today and you are a kind of a skeptic of all this. And the main reason you're skeptic is because you have plugged in the recipe many, many times in your life and you didn't get the result. God's asking you today to lean in and listen. Lean into the relationship. As a church, I believe God's calling us to lean in and listen. So we're going to worship. We're going to sing a song. We're going to sing it um, as God leads y'all to lead us. Lead us. We're going to listen to God's spirit. And here's what I'm going to invite you to do. I want you to lean in and listen and see God's face. You know, as Restoration Church, we've got some cool plans. We believe God's given us a really great recipe. But even then, we do not want to be presumptuous and believe that even though he's called us to a certain recipe, that we can guarantee certain results. Because God doesn't work that way. But what we can do is pursue his face and pursue his heart. We can lean in and listen. So this morning, I want you to go ahead and stand your feet. And in a moment, they're going to start leading us in a song of worship and praise. As you do that, God may want you to lean in a couple different ways. And I'm going to ask you to do one of, these, one of these few ways as long as you feel comfortable. One is just in your heart, listening to the Spirit, telling God and praising God, how, reminding yourself and, and celebrating with Him how great He is as we sing and as we worship. What are we singing? It is well. It is well. So as we sing and we talk about how great He is and our response to Him, that may be your response. I'm going to ask you to do something else, though, as well. Maybe grab a friend, grab a family member. Um, if, if you feel comfortable, find a place in this room and just spend some time praying. Praying that God will speak to you, speak to us, God would work. Just be reminded. It's all about what he, He's doing, what He wants to do, what He wills to do, what He chooses to do. And we, get, we just get to play a part in it. That's all we want. We just want to play a part in it, God. So if you feel comfortable one of those two things, just worshiping, praising Jesus, declaring to Him how much you love Him, how great He is to you, or maybe by yourself or with a family member, with a friend, with a few folks, finding a place to pray right around the table, whatever it is, and spend some time praying. And we're done. They're going to close us, close us up. Last thought, and this is where you are, we are moving that direction. You know, when you think about what your, your mom, your grandma may cook, how good it is. You always feel like you're just missing something, just a little bit extra. Right? Just a little bit extra. I wonder what they put in there. What's that seasoning? Maybe they put a little bacon grease in there. In the South, you've got to put bacon grease in everything, right? Maybe it's bacon grease. Something a little bit extra. This is a horrible analogy theologically, but I think you'll get it. We can get the perfect recipe. But without God working through us and in us and on, on top and above and in everything we do, then we're missing that something.